The title of the sermon is The Cost of Discipleship. I'm going to start by asking you a question, and I want you to take a moment just to think about it, maybe in light of the video that we've just seen. How far are you prepared to go in pursuit of genuine discipleship? You should write that down. Because the cost of non-discipleship will always be greater for you in your life than the cost of discipleship. We will read in, in Paul in Colossians 1, 28 and 29 in a moment the cost that Paul was prepared to pay. Our initial cost is the loss of our old identity. We need to remember this afternoon that freedom in Christ is not freedom to do our own thing, but freedom to choose Christ over the ways of the world. So turn with me to Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29 this afternoon. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all energy that he works powerfully within me. So the words from the Apostle Paul here are very, very clear to each and every one of us. I want you to take a moment to think about your house. Indulge me for a moment. Think about the most valuable item in your house. I guarantee you only one thing, you look after it. Maybe for some of the younger people here at your Xbox or your PlayStation, well, it costs you a little bit of pocket money to save over a considerable period of time to buy it, therefore you're going to steward that really, really well, right? I certainly did in my earlier years. But whatever the most valuable thing is, you look after it. Why? It costs you something. And I want to suggest to you this afternoon that for you to be truly discipled, for you to pursue genuine discipleship, it's going to cost you some stuff. Consider this. If you are ever struggling to say yes to something Jesus has asked you to do, you have forgotten or lost sight of what it cost Jesus in saving you. That should impact the way that we think, friends. God is not calling perfect people to be ambassadors in this world. He, there wasn't a perfect man amongst the 12 disciples. He is only calling one type of person, and that's an imperfect person trusting his perfection. Nudge the person next to you and say, he's talking to you. <laughs> he's talking to you this afternoon. A key consideration for us as we go on this journey is that we cannot negotiate with Jesus. There's no calculated approach. We can't go, well, you know, Jesus, I'm going to trust you up to this point. And then actually, I'm just going to go ahead and check out. If we are in, we are in. If we are out, we are out in our discipleship with Jesus Christ. Assume the cost will be total, which is all your friendships, all your money, all your possessions, everything that you possess and own, you may end up losing as you pursue Jesus and discipleship. I want us to be known as this church, KT to be known as a church that glorifies Christ. Amen? So the first consideration is, he says very clearly, him we proclaim. Paul summarizes his message in merely three words, him we proclaim. And he doesn't preach religion, he preaches relationship. Every person in here that knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, you made a proclamation of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ 
because of a decision that you'd made in your heart. You proclaimed, you declared what had happened internally. The method by which that's done, we will see in a moment. But to proclaim means to make something public, to declare something as truthful that's happening. It is not restricted just to public preaching. Paul's proclamation considered two aspects, one negative and one positive. But the primary focus of what he was doing was proclamation. Better expressed, actually, as you announcing something. Not just proclaiming, but you announce something. You declare what has happened. So let's read where he says in Colossians 1, 28, second half. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Warning and teaching, positive and negative. Warning better translates as to admonish, to warn, to instruct. It actually means to place your mind, to set your mind against negative things potentially happening in our lives. I would suggest that Christianity in this world has disintegrated so much that the words that Paul even says here, we would be considered bigots in our evangelical Christianity today. Because you know why? We've allowed tolerance to creep into the mixture of what we declare in every part of our lives. We've allowed tolerance to become the main staple part of our diet when actually we need to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ at every opportunity. There is no space for lukewarm Christianity in the world, but also in God's kingdom. Nobody will believe in an invisible God when they see no visible difference between our lives and theirs. Amen? If we buy into intolerance, we will become indifferent about sharing the gospel. We will no longer care or love for people that God has placed in our lives. Paul didn't only warn, however, he also said teach. Teaching is from a Greek word, didikasso, which means to instruct or to teach. It's the positive side of proclamation and involves imparting biblical truths to people for a foundation of biblical understanding. The warning, there is a moral appeal, but with teaching, there's a doctrinal emphasis that forms the basis of change in and through God's word in our lives. Now, when you think about admonishing someone, just think for a moment, have you ever had anyone, quote, give you a piece of their mind? Anybody? Come on, if we're living in the world here, that's going to have happened. People often attempt to admonish one another by giving each other a piece of our mind. The reality is we've probably both been on both sides of that equation. I certainly know that I have. But the reality here is Paul does lace it with a little bit of insight for us with wisdom. Wisdom is very, very important. Paul adds that phrase for our benefit. What does it mean? Wisdom is the ability to think and act like God in the world with his heart and with his purpose in mind. And if you frame these words against Ephesians 4.15, which Paul also says, the words are almost identical. Speaking the truth in love. Amen? Any, anyone ever had a Christian say that to you? Oh, I'm just speaking the truth in love to you, brother. No, you're not. You're giving me a piece of your mind. Right? <laughs> You know what I'm talking about. We will grow, Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, i.e., before you add anything else to it, you must do this. Speak the truth in love. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is head, that is Christ. Sometimes we want to love in spite of truth. Often we give truth without love, 
because we don't want to deal with the potential fallouts, the offence, the embarrassment, the awkwardness of having that type of conversation. And yet genuine admonishment means that you will love them enough to reach out and connect with them. So I want to suggest that we should probably do a little bit more encouraging and correcting and motivating one another in love than we actually necessarily do. Because we run the risk so often of, oh, I don't want to offend people, so I'm just going to continue letting you have that addiction or that bad mindset or that struggle or that problem. But actually, true love, true love in the body of Christ means that you will help that person because you don't want them to stay where they are. You will risk the friendship in the name of helping getting them discipled to a point where those issues are no longer a problem. Make no mistake, teaching is not the responsibility of anyone and everyone that stands on this platform. It is your responsibility to learn. It is the responsibility of every single believer to teach which means we need to get into the Word of God each and every time. Colossians 3, verse 16, let the Word of God dwell, which means it camps around, it sits around, it's within. Dwell richly in you, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart. Paul then goes on to say that we may present every man perfect, in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm quite close, right? Come on. No? Paul said, present every person perfect, sorry. Nobody? No. Oh dear. No, he says to present every person perfect in Christ. What Paul is really referring to is maturity. He's referring to spiritual, and I would suggest possibly Uh, spilling over a little bit into emotional and mental maturity about who you are in Christ. The word perfect actually translates as someone who has reached the end that God intends for them. The idea that Paul has in mind here is someone who is fully mature in their union with Christ. Consider that in your own life, in your own heart. How full in terms of maturity do you consider you are? I would suggest for all of us it's still very much an onward journey. The only way to reach maturity is by union with Christ. Paul is stressing that mature believers realize that it is Christ's life in them and he is the source of the power, the change and the victory. The only way to overcome every temptation is to be in Christ. Paul is actually encouraging us to live this out each and every day in our lives, which means that you never outgrow your relationship with Jesus Christ. The danger as you develop in your Christian walk, in your Christian journey, as you enhance your understanding of Scripture, is that you can just become familiar. A little bit like the video. We can just get to a point, even an elevated status and point in our walk with Jesus, where we go, you know what? I have enough of him. I have reached the peak of what there is available for me. Wrong. There is always yet more for you to attain, yet more for you to achieve, yet more for you to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. When you feed on Christ, that hunger and thirst for him will develop more and more and more. It's an ever-growing experience which will result in you pursuing him more and more and more and the cycle will continue. The end result is Christ in you, is a person who looks like Jesus Christ. You know, I remember years and years ago, this would be eight, maybe ten years ago, I was witnessing to some friends of mine and it got to a point in the conversation, it was a little theological admittedly, um, where he didn't have answers for me. 
and he, he felt like he was losing the argument. Maybe he'd lost it on points, right? And so he turned around and he said to me, oh, the problem with you is that you're just like Jesus. You're just trying to be like Jesus. And it was a, it was a term of like trying to dismiss me, trying to say, you know, actually, you're an idiot. Actually, I took that as a form of a compliment because so often we don't put Christ on display in our lives. We hide him away under the pain, under the shame, under the challenges that we go through. And actually, when we let Christ emerge, people see that. People see that there is something different about us. Ask yourself this question. How much closer to Jesus' character have you become from the day that you first declared Jesus as your Lord and Savior? It should be a little milestone moment in your journey with Jesus I would hope that it's further along than where you were last week or last month or last year. But the destination is always Christ. So let's recap for a moment. He refers to the word everyone here three times in this portion of scripture. Why? Because Paul is highlighting to us the universality of salvation. That it's open and available to absolutely everyone. He refers to the words in all wisdom. We are called to be disciplined in our deliverance, in our teaching, in the way that we communicate with others so that they can be matured in their Christian journey. When we present, that we may present, signifies the scope of the teaching necessary to make every single person perfect, which doesn't mean every single person in the world becomes mature in Christ, but it means everyone that you encounter, you take a personal responsibility to say, I want to see them reach their maturity in Christ. And then we read verse 29. Paul gives us the purpose in preaching this. For this I toil, I'm reading ESV, struggling with all energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul is telling us here that the end and the purpose of all of his labor, all of his struggles, is a little bit like an athlete in any arena, whether it's boxing, rugby, American football, it doesn't matter. The goal is to render every single man and woman perfect in Christ. And he has found that the secret of this endurance and success is found not in his own strength, but in the grace of Jesus Christ that has been afforded him. To toil is better translated to work to the point of exhaustion. Ask yourselves the last time that we did that in our Christian walk. I know that the opportunities are there. I know that there is greatness inside each and every one of us. But often we will work only to the capacity with which we're comfortable. And I want to suggest that we need to learn to toil for the things of the kingdom far, far greater than maybe some of us are demonstrating now. Because the greatness is within us. Paul makes it very, very clear in the second part of verse 29, which we will get to. It actually is an old English word which means to agonize. That's what the word is derived from. Success in serving the Lord for each and every one of us will be like a sports game, will be like a sports field, will require maximum effort each and every time. Paul labors because it involves striving or struggling, which means that we agonize like an athlete in the heat of a competition, which means that's what ministry looks like. It's not a marathon, it's not a sprint, sorry, but it is a marathon. For you and your Christian journey, for some of us here that are taking our first step of obedience and getting baptized, your journey, the race that you're about to run with Jesus starts today in many respects. Amen? 
and we should celebrate their lives because they've joined us on that journey today. We should celebrate them and give God praise for each and every one of their lives. But I want you to take a moment to think about the toiling. It means for some of us that you work a long day, maybe you get home at seven, eight o'clock, your boss has been rude to you again, but there's still somebody to follow up that you met in church today, which means you have to set aside a lot of that stuff, have a moment with Jesus, renew your mind, cleanse your heart, open up your heart and pick up the phone because that person needs Jesus and you are the connection in that moment. You are the person. You know, it's often said, it's easy to see how a Christian lives their life. If we could put our diaries from 6 a.m. to midnight on the screen, everything that we've done for the last week, what would our life look like? How we've spent our money, how we've stewarded our time. Paul is making it very, very clear. We've got to toil. We've got to work ourselves to the point of exhaustion in our pursuit of the things of the kingdom, which means we've got to learn how to strive, which means we've got to build spiritual muscles, we've got to build perseverance. It's inadequate just to attend church on a Sunday, friends. There is so much more for us in our Christian journey. Amen? And this is coming from a guy that wrote most of his good work, I would argue, well, suggest theologically at least, in prison. So this guy knew what it was to toil, this guy knew what it was to strive. This guy knew what it was to go through challenges in his life, and yet he still decided, I'm going to be intentional about my pursuit of the Father. Because it will not look glorious each and every day. You're going to run into opposition. You're going to run into spiritual battles. You're going to run into people that don't want to help you extend God's kingdom. But you've got to ask yourself, am I prepared to pay the cost of true discipleship? Because we're often prepared to pay the cost once we know what the price is, right? Nobody walks into a supermarket, you pick up, I don't know, your favorite cereal or something, and they, they don't, there's no prices attached to it. You get to the counter, they want £10.50. You buying it? <laughs> don't know about you, but it better be very good cereal at that point, right? <laughs> you go into a sneaker store to buy trainers. You want to know the price, and you're looking for a discount already, right? We like to know what we're buying into, right? In the natural sense of the word. And I want to suggest to you this afternoon, your entire life belongs to Jesus, which means you have to buy in all the way. Amen? But Paul reminds us where this energy comes from. He's energized by the supernatural power of Christ in him. He's motivated by the Holy Spirit. Make no mistake, it is absolutely futile to attempt to do God's work in your own physical strength. I guarantee you two things. You will get tired and you will disconnect from God. Those are the only two conditions that that play themselves out in those moments. We have to be energized by God's power. It is his power that is working in us. Which brings me to my final point and a conclusion. And I'm hoping a picture will come up on the screen. This is not a, a secret really about me, but you know, if I could have been an actor, I would have been James Bond. Yeah. <laughs> Who, what, what guy would not like to be James Bond? Last picture, please. If you've ever seen the movie Casino Royale. Anyone seen it? Yeah, we know it. It's Daniel Craig. I'm not sure about him as Bond, but that's a separate conversation. <laughs> this is a scene right at the end. They're playing poker in Montenegro, I believe, if my memory's right. And they go back and forth, and he wins and he loses, and he loses and he wins, and all the rest of it. And then there just comes a point where Daniel Craig, I mean, he's had to ask more money from the government and all this stuff, so he's already in quite a way. But there comes a point where he just goes... 
I'm all in. And you can see the blue, I think they're worth a million and the red ones are two million or something. I forget how much money it is. But the analogy and the point is this. There's going to come a time in your Christian walk where you have to be all in. That is the hallmark of a true disciple. We cannot be partway in in our walk with Christ. These wonderful men and women are going to get into the baptism tank at some point. They will be baptized full immersion. They are all in. They're not going to be dipping their toe. Amen? And I want to suggest to each and every one of us in our Christian walk, in our journey with Jesus, we have to decide that we are all in. We cannot compartmentalize our faith with Jesus Christ, which means we've got to count the cost of what it is to be a disciple, which means there are going to be people in your life, spiritual authorities, brothers and sisters, that are going to tell you some stuff about your character, about your personality, hopefully in love, amen, right, that you're not going to like. Sorry about that. Now, the measure with which you want to grow is how offended you choose to be or not by those comments. If you capture that person's heart, you will know that they are saying it for your benefit. The total cost is everything. Paul says very clearly in Philippians 3 verse 8, I count everything. Everything. Which means there are no ifs, there are no buts, there are no negotiations, there are no clauses in this contract that he's essentially made. He is saying, I count everything as loss. I'm prepared to surrender it all. I'm prepared to give it all up because of the surpassing wealth, worth, sorry, of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. So he hasn't even entered the fullness of what it is to know Christ yet. And he's like, you know what? I'm prepared to lay it all down. And that's intentional. That's deliberate on our part. We cannot live in the world in every part of our life. We have to be intentional about pursuing Christ, which means we have to jump all in to everything in our lives has to orientate around his kingdom. When we're willing to pay the cost of discipleship, we're willing to give up our old identity, per sacrifice our personal freedom, let go of our own prejudices, and even surrender our wealth, our allegiance to other people, we have to be willing to die to self. Then we experience that new life in Christ. The cost of discipleship I would suggest, is perfectly reasonable when you frame it against the gift that you've received. You were bought for a price. Honor that. The only hope that we should have are the last three words before we get to verse 28. Christ, the hope of glory in me. That's your great hope. That's where your wealth is found. That's where God wants to move in each and every part of your life. And so I want to ask you a question as I bring my thoughts to a close this afternoon. Are you toiling? Are you striving? Are you proclaiming the Lordship of Jesus Christ everywhere you go? And it's not necessarily standing on a street corner. It's not necessarily standing on a platform. It's how you conduct your life. It's how you communicate. It's how you share everything about Christ. Because as we do that, as we have a focus on the kingdom and nothing else, everything else is rendered as loss. Everything else is rendered as lost because we're able to fix our eyes on Christ, the hope of glory in us. And he knows exactly what we need to do. He knows exactly who you're called to connect to. He knows exactly who you're meant to be reaching. But if there's no striving, there's no achieving. A bit like the video. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it. 
the reality are, is that there are not a million Usain Bolts, there are not a million Kobe Bryants, there are one of each of those individuals, and there's one of each of us in this room, and you and you alone are called to reach people. Do not neglect the gift that God has given you, friends. Please, strive, toil, toil to the point of exhaustion. Even when you're tired, get up and go again. Pursue the kingdom with reckless abandonment. Pursue his heart, pursue people, because in doing that, you will fulfill God's plan, God's will, and God's purpose for your life. And I tell you, there is rejoicing in that only. Paul wrote, like I said, some of his best letters from prison, where he's physically restricted, but spiritually, emotionally, mentally, he's alive and well. He's free. He's full of life. Why? Because of the hope of glory that he had within him.